0: Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you this week a little Flavors of Fascism segment on traditionalist Catholicism, sometimes called on the internet "Trad calf uh, which is just a, just a very unfortunate sounding word. And, and, you know, it doesn't really roll off the tongue. Traditionalist Catholicism is an important topic on the right wing, not only historically, as we go back into the 1960s and 70s, but also today in the sort of like meme-inflected, internet-oriented post-alt-right. I'm going to start out with the historical examples, the historical precedents of this. And uh, that brings us right to probably the most confusing and curious thing about this term, traditional Catholicism, uh, traditionalist Catholicism. You might be saying to yourself, well, but Craig, isn't Catholicism traditional? Why does it need this additional adjective to say that they're traditionalist Catholics? Well, there is a very interesting historical story behind that. Uh, I at least had better hope it was interesting because it is what my PhD research was about. Uh, So strap yourselves in. It's time for Craig's dissertation. At its most basic, traditionalist Catholicism is a reaction to the Second Vatican Council and the changes that this brought to the church. The Second Vatican Council is the most recent of the ecumenical councils held by the Catholic Church. The first of these councils were held in, you know, the years like 300, essentially founding the Catholic Church. And Christianity as it was practiced in late Roman times. Some of the other councils that were held were, you know, one in the 1500s as a response to the Protestant Reformation. Essentially, a ecumenical council that was saying, like, hey, we're not Protestants, and we're not going to make any concessions toward them whatsoever. You know, they can go fuck themselves. Uh, this is the Council of Trent. The First Vatican Council, which was held in the late 1800s, which was also saying like, hey, we're just doubling down. We're going to be super conservative and oppose democracy. That was the official position of the Catholic Church back in the 19th century. It was a virulently reactionary force, not just in Europe, but throughout the world. Official papal positions and official church positions on democracy were that it was a mistake and that people should not be ruled by themselves, that they should instead be ruled by monarchs they were opposed to gender equality they were opposed to capitalism in general but also specifically to labor organizing and things like that uh, some of those things were moderated a little bit by some later priests uh, in you know papal statements that they had made but the fact is that the official position of the church as a whole with regards to things like democracy workers rights women's rights and stuff was just like impossibly conservative like conservative to a, gr- a degree that's like medieval intentionally, right? On a more theological note, the Church was also opposed to any potential changes to how the Church worked, things that uh, conservatives in the Church described as Protestantization, For example, having the Mass, which is the primary religious rite in Catholicism, performed in vernacular, that is, everyday actual languages, as opposed to Latin, the official stodgy old language of the church. Or having priests face the congregation when they were doing these religious rites, as opposed to facing the crucifix, which was usually on a wall, uh, so that, you know, they would literally be having their backs to the people who were actually there most of the time when they were performing the official religious rites. This church, this old, conservative, traditionalist 19th century church, was oriented very much so around the concept of majesty. That is, that the Catholic Church needed to be something that was held apart, that was different, that was distinct, you know, that was separate from everyday life. And this is part of the reason that priests are separated out of everyday life, that they can't have families like anybody else, they can't get married, they can't have children. The Catholic Church was supposed to be something apart say what you want about this as a religious practice or as a religious doctrine, but it produces a serious division within the church, a superiority and a separation between the priests and the congregation, the people who actually go to the church. Now, in the 1960s, a lot of these things changed because the church held its most recent ecumenical council, the Second Vatican Council, which was held in the early 1960s. It ended uh, before 1965 the church opens up somewhat after the Second Vatican Council. It moderates a little bit. It even democratizes some things, depending on how you use the word democratize. It allowed people to use the vernacular that is their everyday language in the Mass. And so for the first time, the Mass and the Bible were translated officially in the Catholic Church into whatever language the congregation spoke. So you would get Mass in Mandarin or English or Spanish or Portuguese, depending on where you were. There were also more roles for the laity, that is people who aren't priests, more roles for women, uh, which is something that the former ecumenical councils really, really, really prohibited. A lot of people liked these changes a lot, and some of those people went on to demand further changes within the Catholic Church, things that might modernize it and, you know, alter it even further. Other people did not like these changes, and they are traditionalist Catholics. So at its most basic, to be a traditionalist Catholic, you have to believe that the Second Vatican Council was a wrong step, a wrong move for the Catholic Church. The most basic, the most baseline part of this is that you think that the Catholic Church should still be performing the Mass and other religious rites in Latin, that priests should still be facing away from the congregation, you know, that sort of thing. A lot of these people join, they united this position, you know, that the Catholic church had changed in the wrong way with a politics that parallels this belief that, you know, their main religious institution had taken some missteps. A lot of these people unite their belief in a, you know, subversive change within the church, you know, that the church was changed for the worse by internal forces with a belief, like a right-wing political belief, that their society, that their political world has also been changed, for the worse, by internal subversive forces. This confluence is precisely what I studied in my dissertation, about people who believed that the church was being changed for the worse from within, and that also their political world was being changed for the worse from within. People who united this, quote-unquote, Protestantization of the Catholic Church with their belief in the influence of communism in their political world and, you know, in their state governments. So that's just sort of like the baseline traditionalist Catholicism. Other people who wanted further separation from the church and who maybe wanted to actually ignore some of the changes that the Second Vatican Council brought, uh, broke off into somewhat separate parts of the Catholic Church. There are plenty of these, and they range from particular churches that are in full communion with Rome, This is kind of getting into the Catholic weeds here, but technically the Catholic Church is an umbrella organization comprising many churches, only one of which is the Roman Catholic Church. There are like two dozen other ones. Most of them are very historical, like old-time churches that are primarily located in the Levant, uh, that is the uh, Mediterranean coast of the Middle East. So these churches were allowed to keep whatever rites they were doing before because of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, and some of them have even gotten back in communion with Rome in, you know, like in and around the 20th century. So, you know, they they, they were sort of grandfathered into this. One of these, uh, such as the Melkites, became a refuge for people who were mainline Roman Catholics in the United States and Europe, but who wanted to be a part of a more traditionalist branch of Catholicism. One such person is Paul Wyrick, the person who founded the Heritage Foundation, the most powerful and important right-wing political think tank and, you know, foundation in the United States. There are a bunch of other sectors of the Catholic Church that perform the Latin Rite, either because they've gotten a special dispensation from the Pope or from an Archbishop or whatever. A lot of these are like, you know, small churches or particular religious fraternities or, you know, um, groups of nuns, that sort of thing. There are other people who disliked the way the Catholic Church was changing so much that they became schismatic. A schism in a religious situation means that there is a separation so complete that they don't talk to each other anymore. You know, they they say that, well, now we're a completely different church. So one of these schisms caused the separation between the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, for example. One example of a schismatic Catholic organization in the 20th century is the Society of St. Pius X which has gone in and out of contact and communion with the Roman Catholic Church. It was founded by a guy named Lefebvre, uh, an archbishop in the Catholic Church back in the mid-20th century, who said you know, that the, that the Catholic Church had changed so much that the Pope was no longer the Pope, that, that the Pope was not the real Pope anymore. Other examples of people who thought that the papacy was effectively vacant, one of the most common ways that people express their schism, uh, is a guy named Pope Michael a.k.a. David Bowden, uh, who was elected pope by six friends and family in 1990 and claimed to be the pope. He, he said that he was the actual pope as opposed to, you know, John Paul II or Pope Ratzinger or Pope Francis. Coincidentally, Pope Michael died this uh, year, just, just, just a couple of months ago, August the 2, 2nd, 2022. These groups, I want to be clear, of traditionalist Catholicism, these groups are small. They do not have lots of adherents. The Society of St. Pius X is relatively small, although it's an international organization. A lot of these, like, smaller religious institutions are, yeah, they're small. The Melkite Church is a very tiny part of the Catholic Church. It doesn't have nearly the influence that the Roman Catholic Church does. But these groups of traditionalist Catholics have massive outsized influence for their particular, you know, actual number of congregants that they have. Remember that a lot of the people who joined these organizations and a lot of people who started them were people who were relatively high up in the Catholic Church or were already extremely influential right-wing conservative Catholic thinkers or political actors. For example, think about Paul Weirich, right? These groups are important. They have a lot of influence in the world, especially in countries that are predominantly Catholic, like many of them in Latin America or Western Europe, and countries with sizable catholic minorities like the united states or germany the influence of these groups has also extended into the internet world uh, of the 21st century by the Tradcath movement right you know a truncation of traditionalist catholicism this is a sort of new right-wing trend not just in the united states but but primarily in the united states of youth people you know of young people who are emphasizing family values traditional gender norms and a return to the Catholic Church as the exemplar of traditionalist thinking and traditional behavior. But they don't mean the church as it actually is, right? Because they don't like Pope Francis. They didn't like late John Paul II. They really did like Pope Benedict XVI, right? Uh, Pope Ratzinger, though. Uh, So they don't mean the church as it actually is, because Pope Francis is a kind of reformist, leftist-leaning pope, right? They mean the church of memes, right? They mean Deus Volt. Uh, in the name of God. Uh, They mean, like, the medievalist crusading church. They mean the church that burns people accusing them of witchcraft. They mean the church that thinks that homosexuality is a sin that is so terrible that the people who participate in it deserve death. That's the tradition that they are talking about. And they think that that is appropriate to the present day because they hold tradition above all else, uh, to a Nonsensical extent. Some examples of people who uh, are influenced by or who openly espouse traditionalist Catholicism. uh, One of them would be Nick Fuentes, who is probably the leader of the youth oriented far right in the United States today. Another smaller example is a guy named Timothy Gordon, who's a popular right wing YouTuber and tradcath violence enthusiast, right? You know, he thinks that we should take the examples of the Crusades as examples for present day politics. Another example is Dasha Nekrasova, one of the co-hosts of the popular Red Brown podcast, uh, the Red Scare. Red Brown, meaning that Red Scare originally was a sort of like, quote unquote, dirtbag left podcast, as in a podcast that was ostensibly leftist, but didn't actually care about, um, you know, what they would derisively call identity politics and what other people might call, you know, being anti-racist or not being anti-queer you know, they didn't care about that. And so Red Scare slid into a quasi-fascistic position on a lot of things. You know, they famously softballed an interview to Steve Bannon about the destruction of Western civilization. Uh, so Necrosova is an out-traditionalist Catholic at this point and just uses the podcast as a way to talk about these ideals Traditional Catholicism has even gotten some like fun little write-ups in the New York Times. Uh, one of them even literally lampooning the uh, Saturday Night Live joke about you know New York's hottest club is, and then they say, well, yeah, you New York's hottest new club is the Catholic Church, because they're treating this group, these people, as if they're just you know some new trend that some youth people are engaging in. As somebody who studies groups like this, and especially especially young people who become enamored of what they consider to be traditionalist Catholicism and how that connects to violent right-wing politics throughout history, I can tell you that this is not a joke. This is not a trend that is easy to get rid of because the fact is that a lot of people are drawn to these narratives and to these claims of tradition and constancy and Western civilization and Christendom. These are not perspectives or beliefs that are going to be going away anytime soon, no matter what happens in the 2024 election. They're things that we're going to have to contend with in our political life for decades to come. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. I'm also on Gmail at 15 minutes of at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at histoftheright. That's H-I-S-T of the right and fascism15. And yeah, if you like the podcast, please tell people about it, share about it, let people know. That's how people listen to it. All right. The next episode will be released on Thanksgiving Day in the United States. Talk to you then.